0: I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we will be considering verse 10 up to verse 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 up to verse 17. That sounds like my singing. (laughs) Uh, For the next couple of months, we will be going through the the affirmation of faith that Stan Fowler drafted about 10 years ago for the fellowship. And we've slightly modified it as an eldership so that we could propose it for our church to adopt it as our own affirmation of faith. Now, before you walk out, because we've changed our doctrine, I will assure you, we have not changed our doctrinal position or beliefs. We believe that we are still faithful to the Scriptures. Our goal in changing our statement of faith or affirmation of faith is to restate our beliefs more winsomely and more accurately. And we're doing this because we believe that stating our our core beliefs is a necessary step as we move into the future that God has in store for us. You might say that theology or our doctrine would be similar or akin to the skeleton of a body. Our theology shapes and stabilizes our church. Without our doctrine, we would be a formless blob that is tossed to and fro by preferences and circumstances and fads. And diseased bones unbiblical doctrine, weaken the body and ultimately kill the church. But we also need to recognize that a skeleton is dead unless it is enfleshed. That is to say, it's not enough to know the doctrine. We need to embody or perform our doctrine by the power of the Holy Spirit, who gives life to the body. All that to say that if we are to be faithful to God's purposes for our church, then we need to know what we believe and why we believe it, and we need to live out in community the implications of what we believe. And so, in light of the importance of what we're doing for the next few um, months, I would encourage you to raise questions. And I've put out a few pads out there. Please don't take the pad, just take a sheet. (laughs) And if you have a question, uh, write it down. And then after the service, about 10 minutes after the benediction, uh, come back here and I'll try to respond to the questions. You write it out so that I don't forget what question it is. And if I don't know the answer, then I'll study and come back to you, okay? Um, But that challenge of knowing what we believe and why we believe and performing what we believe is very much the focus of this passage. Paul is encouraging Timothy, who is ministering in Ephesus, to stand firm for the gospel, in the face of false teaching, lifeless religion, and persecution in a morally bankrupt culture. And if that sounds familiar, that's why we're talking about it. This is the same situation we ourselves face as believers in this present time. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 up to verse 17. Paul addresses Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if I may stop here and say, this is what we mean when we say God has a wonderf- loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And we mean that. This is the promise, in fact, and invitation of Jesus. If any man will come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and come follow me. And in that death to self is found true life. So let's continue. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed Now if you read on you will know that the apostle Paul is about to die. He knows that he's this is as it were his last will and testament to Timothy. And so when he te- he, he gives Timothy then in this text two reasons to continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of in verse 14. First of all, he points to his example And the example of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. Their lives bear witness to the truthfulness of Christianity. That's what he's saying in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Timothy had seen the faithfulness of God. In the lives of Eunice, Lois, and, Peter, and Paul. That's why in verse 10 up to verse 11, you see Paul saying, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my, my faith, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. You've seen everything about my life. You've seen how I suffered. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Paul had left him an example to follow. And I must say, as I think of Paul's words to Timothy about his example as a father in Christ and of the example of Eunice and Lois, I cannot help but give thanks to God for my parents who didn't just teach me the Bible but who demonstrated the goodness of God, to me. They weren't perfect, but the lives convinced me, or helped to convince me, that Jesus deserves my utmost allegiance. And it wasn't just them. My parents raised me in a church where the godly example of brethren around me who also were my teachers at the Christian school provided the scaffolding that formed and strengthened my faith. What am I trying to say based on this? I'm trying to say that the discipleship of our children begins with the way we understand and live out our affirmation of faith. Earlier in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul had referred to the church as the, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, we have a number of structural engineers in the congregation, so I'm not going to go into the technical details of it. You can ask them about it. But as I understand it, a pillar holds up the truth and a buttress supports it. So what Paul is saying is that we as a church proclaim and support the truth in the way we proclaim it. We help make the truth more credible. We don't make it more true We make it more credible when we live out its beauty in our lives. Kevin Van Hooser would point this out. Theology teaches how to live the good life in light of the good news to the glory of the God who alone is good. The Puritan theologian William Ames defines theology more as that good life whereby we live to God than as that happy life whereby we live to ourselves. Of course, the truly happy life, blessedness, is the good life lived unto God in friendship and fellowship with the blessed Trinity. The crucial point is that theology is an eminently practical affair more living with than writing about God. And as a church, we need to understand our affirmation of faith so that we may embody it in order to nurture and strengthen the faith of those whom God brings into our midst. One of the things that attracted me to this church was that there are theology geeks around. Love it. But to my fellow theology geeks, let us not be content with being able to debate the nuances of our affirmation of faith. Let our embrace of the affirmation of faith lead us to adorn the gospel by reflecting the goodness of God in our life together. So the challenge for each of us is this. Will people be drawn to the faith that we confess the more they get to know us? And thus our life together make people desire Christ who shapes our church. that's our challenge. We need to demonstrate the plausibility of the gospel by showing how it enables a flourishing human life that glorifies our God and King. Now, that being said, I've already told you the story of the church where I grew up. It split three times in 10 years. So yes, we enhance the plausibility of the gospel by our lives, but the ultimate basis of our faith cannot be the behavior or experience of people. We need something more solid. That's why Timothy is pointed by Paul in verse 15 to something even more reliable. The scriptures. Verse 15 And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy can be confident of what he has learned from Paul, not just because Paul's life attests to it, but because what Paul taught him is consistent with Scripture that he is known from childhood. See, it comes down to this. The Scriptures are the unchanging standard on which our faith is founded because they are the self-revelation of our faithful God. To put it in historical terms, with the Reformers, we hold to sola scriptura. And we'll use the statement that Matthew Barrett gave to define it. Only Scripture, because it is God's inspired Word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. And with that in mind, here is what we affirm about the Scriptures. This now is our affirmation of faith. I think there are uh, copies of it, In the foyer, there's a PDF version online that uh, was in the email, Um, so you can access that over the week. Throughout history, God has revealed himself in a variety of ways, and God has preserved the substance of this revelation in the Bible. When we say the Bible, we mean the 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament. By the way, there is a Catholic Bible in the foyer, in the Lost and Found, And uh, Mike and Lydia were with me, and they were asking me, would you preach from this? And I said, well, not from that section there. (laughs) We only have 66 books. These books were written by divinely chosen authors as they were prompted and guarded by the Spirit of God. Although these writers were genuine authors, and in most cases, not just secretaries taking dictation, The work of the Spirit was so complete that everything written in the biblical books taught the truth without any errors. This inerrancy of the Bible, strictly speaking, applies to its books as originally written. But God has preserved those writings in such a way that in the copies and translations of the Bible which we possess for all practical purposes, we can be confident that we have the original text of the Bible. In any attempt to define what we ought to believe or how we ought to live, only the Bible can be used as a final authority. Traditional interpretations of the Bible and confessions of faith are useful guides, but they are always open to correction based on further study of the Bible. Any union with others who profess to be Christians must be based on a shared commitment to the unique authority and complete truthfulness of the Bible. So we affirm that the Bible is our church's primary source and ultimate authority for faith and practice because Scripture is breathed out by God, according to chapter 3, verse 16. Look at that. All Scripture is breathed out By God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That it is breathed out by God or God breathed means that it comes from God Himself. And within this context, Scripture would be referring to the original manuscripts of the Old Testament authors. That's all that Timothy, that's what Paul was talking about. From, scripture, from your childhood, you have learned holy scriptures or the sacred writings. When Timothy, presumably, was a child, he might have been born around the time that Jesus was born. So, the only scriptures that he would have had would have been the Old Testament. But we could also extend that God-breathed Characteristic to the New Testament legitimately. And we see that even in the way the New Testament authors use scripture or refer to um, the words of Jesus. For example, um, Paul cites the words of Jesus recorded in Luke 10, verse 7, and he refers to them as scripture in 1 Timothy 5, 18. We have it? No? We lost it. Oh yeah, it's there. Good. And um, copies of Paul's letters were circulated among the churches, and Paul would refer to those letters that Paul had written in Second Peter three sixteen as scripture. I actually find it very encouraging that Peter found them hard to understand too. Guess I'm not the only one. So, the point of it is, the Old Testament Scriptures are referred to as God-breathed, but the New Testament authors would refer to New Testament texts as also God-breathed, and therefore Scripture, and therefore God-breathed. D.A. Carson would sum it up. The church, then, did not confer a certain status on documents that would otherwise have lacked it, as if the church were an institution with authority independent of the Scriptures or in tandem to the Scriptures. Rather, the New Testament documents were Scripture because of what God had revealed. The church, providentially led, came to wide recognition of what God had done in His climactic self-disclosure in His Son and in the documents that bore witness to and gathered up the strands of the Son revelation. And what we need to recognize is that Paul is emphatic in this passage. All Scripture, meaning every word in the original manuscripts, providentially preserved in the copies of those manuscripts, is God's Word. And it's not that God dictated Scripture, we believe that God, according to First Peter chapter, second Peter chapter one, actually, twenty and twenty-one, that God sovereignly guided all the human authors so that they were fully engaged in writing those letters or those books, but what they wrote was from God. So that when Paul says in the text, It is the equivalent of saying, God says. And we also believe that God has providentially preserved the copies so that we have faithful reproductions of the originals. And that belief is borne out in the manuscript evidence. We don't have time to go into the manuscript evidence. We can discuss that at another time. Because there's something even more important. Since Scripture is the Word of God who is truthful, omniscient, and infinite in wisdom, then it must also be inerrant. It is truthful, absolutely truthful, and contains no error. That's why we use it and refer to it as our final authority. All other sources of knowledge are fallible, because they are limited by human finitude and human sinfulness. As human beings, we can never see the whole picture, and our interpretation of data will always be marred by our sin. Nothing else but scripture addresses us with all the authority of God Himself, demanding our submission. And I find that this is where my problem is. It's that submission part. During Luther's time, man had replaced the authority of Scripture with human tradition. During the Enlightenment, man replaced the authority of Scripture with human reason. In our day, we replaced the authority of Scripture with scientism, with personal experience, or some of us with our feelings. Or some of us would not be willing to say that we don't submit to the authority of Scripture. We just find a different way to interpret the text to support my position. But at the heart of our efforts is our desire to be autonomous. To put ourselves in the place of God just like our parents, Adam and Eve, who rejected God's Word. Thankfully, God in His grace gave us the Scriptures in order to turn us from our rebellion. Notice what it says in verse 15. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I missed last week's service. But I did catch the live stream, and if you recall, there was a young lady on the, on the Guelph hockey team who put up her Bible and said, there's good stuff in this. And I agree, but I'd like us to take it a little bit further, actually a whole lot further. It's not just that there's good stuff in this, there is actually life in this. Because it is God's self-revelation given so that we might know Him, whom to know is eternal life. So please understand, Scripture is more than an academic curiosity. It is God's gracious speech act to rescue us from our blind stubbornness. And the Bible isn't an encyclopedia or a textbook on math and science. Neither is it a book of rules for moral living or a fact book about God. There's some of that, but Scripture is more. Scripture is meant to point us to Christ so that we would put our trust in Him. Scripture actually weaves a grand narrative through a variety of literary genres produced over hundreds of years. And the Old and New Testaments tell a unified story of who God is, who we are, and what God is doing. Scripture begins with how the triune God created the world by his powerful word and loved the world despite Adam and Eve's rebellion and the repeated failures of their offspring. And that love story climaxes in the living word who was in the beginning with God and was himself God, becoming flesh so that he may die and rise again to pay the penalty for our sin and bring us into covenant relationship with him. That's where we are right now, in between times, and in the place of our rebellion, God has given us new hearts to love Him and to obey His Word. His Spirit dwells in us to transform us and to enable us to obey Him as we await the consummation of our salvation. We sang about a while ago, when he shall come with trumpet sound. May I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. See, here's the awesome reality that hits me. The Bible tells the story, the drama of God's redemption. And we through faith in Jesus Christ, have become part of that drama. And Scripture has continuing relevance because it instructs us how we may play our part faithfully. I'm thankful to um, Kevin Van Hooser for that image of being in the drama. That's why it says in verse 17... Uh, Verse 16 and 17, And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Which means that we need to approach Scripture humbly. That it is profitable for teaching implies that we would not know God rightly apart from His revelation. In fact, it tells us that you and I, smart as we may think we are, are in great need of teaching. See, the Bible serves as the spectacles that help us to see the world rightly. I remember being about 10 years old when I first got glasses. And When I put on my glasses, I, I just had this. So that's what the world looks like. <laughs> that's what this is for. These are the lenses that allow us to see the world properly. And that it is profitable for reproof means the Scripture is also God's scalpel that cuts deep and reveals our own errors and shows us where we are wrong. Friends, Our reading of Scripture, as it helps us see the world rightly, also needs to reveal our blind spots. Scripture needs to convict us of sin and expose the faulty standards that we hold to. We may have high standards, but they may be higher than God meant them to be. We may have low standards, and they may be lower than God means them to be. And here's the challenge. If you agree with our affirmation on Scripture, when was the last time your Bible reading confronted you with your sin? See, if the Bible agrees with you all the time, I'm sorry to say, you're probably not reading it right. To master the Scriptures is to be mastered by the Scriptures. Because Scripture is the Spirit's means of renewing our minds. It is meant to define our beliefs, and our beliefs then shape our desires, and in turn, shape our conduct. So it goes on. It is profitable for correction and for training in righteousness. Thankfully, God doesn't show us where we went wrong. Correction means He shows us how to rectify our mistakes, rectify our lives, and then it goes on and forms us for righteous living. Training in righteousness implies character development. It's like those people who go to the gym. I'm not one of them. But the people who work out are developing their strength. It's like it, 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 it corresponds to gaining wisdom and discernment. The way, since I'm in Canada, a hockey player is able to adapt to game situations. Because she is steeped in the fundamentals. And it's the same situation that happens. As we obey Scripture, God forms our desires and develops our discernment so that we could determine how we could honor God whatever circumstance we're faced with, even when Scripture does not directly address it. For example, I dare say that Moses, Isaiah, and Paul knew nothing about cloning, knew nothing about in vitro fertilization, and if you don't know anything about them, that's all right. Neither did they know about Twitter. But we can evaluate these technologies in light of the biblical account of what it means to be human, and in light of the biblical account of the givenness of creation. And when it comes to Twitter, there's Ephesians 4. And now it talks about our speech. The point I'm trying to make is that Scripture continues to be relevant in our day and age. And that continuing relevance of Scripture means that we need to practice the Reformation slogan that in Latin goes, Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, secundum verbum Dei. And before I cut my tongue off, trying to say that again, we'll say it in English. The church reformed, always being reformed according to the Word of God. God's mind is infinite, so we will never grasp Scripture fully. Our privilege and challenge is to grow and keep growing in our understanding of it. And that's why in our affirmation of faith, we would say that we consider traditional interpretations of the Bible, creeds and confessions of faith as useful guides, but non-binding guides. We actually had a case of that today. You may not have noticed it. But when we were singing, And Can It Be That I Should Gain?, we committed heresy. Well, no, we didn't commit heresy. In the past, when we sang, Emptied Himself of All But Love, we were actually proclaiming a heresy. Because that's the kenosis theory. Today, we corrected it. Humbled Himself because of love. That is Philippians 2 properly understood. But that's an example of what semper reformanda, of being always reforming, is all about. It is recognizing that creeds, confessions, and hymns are human efforts to understand and express Scripture within a particular historical context. And as believers who are following in the same tradition, we draw on them as resources that help us come to a deeper, fuller understanding and application of Scripture. I've been asked about the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, and I would say it's a great confession. I've taught through it twice in two different churches, and I've always had to qualify, explain, and um, nuance a number of its provisions. But it has also helped me develop my understanding of doctrine. Our task as followers of Jesus Christ in this day and age is to stand respectfully on the shoulders of those who have gone before us so that we may see further. We honor the tradition by taking their insights deeper and further and living out the truth faithfully in a manner appropriate to our context. And as we understand the Bible more fully, we need to reform our practices accordingly. And this is the hard part. Growing in truth demands that we change. We cannot make progress without change. But the change that happens needs to be to align us more fully, more faithfully to the standard of Scripture. Because Scripture is meant to equip us to serve God's purposes in our generation. Notice, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We seek to align our beliefs and practices with Scripture so that we may fulfill the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Standing firm for truth should not result in a fortress mentality. Our affirmation of faith is not a ball to protect during a rugby scrum. I don't want to lose it. No. Our stand for truth, our affirmation of faith is meant to enable loving engagement. So that when people ask us, who are you? This is what we believe. This is what we understand it means to be a Christian. This is what a Christian would believe. And we hold it forth graciously and lovingly because we understand that God sends us out, empowered by His Spirit, guided by His Scriptures, to live as light in the world. So that as we understand Scripture better, The Spirit applies the truths to us both individually and corporately so that as a congregation we point forward to the new creation holding out the hope of the gospel with our lips and adorning it with our lives so that when people look at us and evaluate our affirmation of faith, they would see that our life and our affirmation of faith are one. And it's not something we do on our own. It is something we do and accomplish by the work of the Spirit, by the power that He alone provides. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. A God who graciously reaches out to us, communicates, makes yourself known because your desire, your purpose is that we might be in relationship with you. And we must confess, Father, that We want to be in relationship with you, but all too often we want it on our terms. Forgive us, Father, for our stubbornness, for our pride. We pray that by your grace you would bend us to your will, that you would cause us, that you'd open our eyes to see the beauty of your truth, the beauty of your person, so that we would Submit ourselves wholeheartedly to your truth, that your truth would transform us. And we thank you that your intention, your goal, your, your ultimate end game is to make us like Jesus, the living word. And we look forward to that time when we will stand before your presence, complete. Dressed in the righteousness of Christ and finally, looking like Christ, able to live out your good purposes for us, reflecting most fully the goodness of your truth, for your glory, for your honor. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.